Building any software, including web apps and APIs, requires testing, of course. There's automated testing, and there's manual testing. And in between, there's exploratory testing that's aided by automation tools. Michael Kennedy joins the show this week to share some of the tools he uses during development and maintenance. We talk about tools used for semi-automated exploratory testing. We also talk about some of the other tools and techniques he uses to keep TalkPython training, TalkPython, and Python Bytes all up and running smoothly. Welcome to Testing Code. On today's episode of Testing Code, Michael Kennedy joins me. Michael Kennedy, of course, is my co-host on Python Bytes and also runs his own uh, podcast, Talk Python to Me, and he's got a little bit of an empire going on with uh, <laughs> with Talk Python training and all sorts of stuff uh, that Michael's up to. So, Michael, welcome. Hey, Brian. It's really good to be on your show. Normally, we get together on Python Bytes, but and sometimes you're on Talk Python as well, so it's great to be over here at Testing Code. Yeah. So, and it's wonderful to have you. One of the things, um, so you, I don't really deal with websites as much as you do. I thought it'd be fun to talk about how to test websites and how to keep them, not just websites, but web services and, and different things and how to keep them running. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I think there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, you hear about the straight down the line. These are the way you write your tests for websites, but there's all these other things that you got to do to, to build and develop and, sort of test them as you're creating creating them before you can put them out in production before uh, you actually have a client to talk to it and things like that so i thought it'd be fun to touch on some of those ideas that kind of round out the testing story of web apps yeah so take it away all right well the first thing that i wanted to talk about you know if you're building a web application you know that does html that's intended for humans it's pretty easy to get started and look at it Right, you fire up your browser. You click the little link when you launch the app. It says your your app is running at localhost, pulling five thousand or whatever. And you click on it and you click around, and that's pretty straightforward. But if you're building APIs, a lot of times that kind of exploration is harder, right? Uh, if the API is just returning something, you could just put in the URL, and that probably works just just as well in the browser. But many times you're using the HTTP verbs that are tricky to make the browser do. For example, there might be a method that has a put, an HTTP put. How do you do an HTTP put in your browser? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you <laughs> can technically go into the JavaScript section and start typing it, but you know, then that's not really working with your browser, right? So one of the things I wanted to talk about is sort of testing out your API, getting different use cases and scenarios going, before you maybe have some kind of client written in a much more exploratory way, right? I'm, I'm developing it. I want to see if this works. I want to try that and kind of go back and forth, maybe even before I've solidified this into some kind of unit test, is to use something like Postman. So are you familiar with the Postman app? Not really. A Postman is super cool. So what Postman lets you do is it's all about calling APIs. So what you do is you get a little dashboard and you put in a URL and there's a dropdown. It says get URL, but the dropdown, you pull it down and it says things like you know, a huge list of HTTP verbs that 
probably would surprise many people to know there are that many there. Like, so get, put, post, delete, patch, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can expand out a little section of, well, what's going to be in your request? Instead of just sending a URL and a query string, you can actually say, well, I want to specify uh, query parameters and maybe some auth stuff. And I want to put this value in the header, like this API key in the header. And I'm going to put you know, maybe a JSON body into the body uh, and so on. And then there's even automated testing scenarios and like scripting stuff you can set up to do so. So is Postman a, a, a paid service or a tool? Uh, or? It's paid, but it's also free. So um, okay. there's, it's like a freemium type of thing. You can get it for free and work with it, but then you can get like a team version that you pay for like team sync features and higher level features and whatnot. Okay, so, so this it still seems like I have to deploy it first. You've got to at least run, have it running locally as oh, okay. a, a test thing. So you don't have to put it, you could just put localhost in there and just click away. Um, the other thing that I end up doing a lot is I, I kind of want to, remember these are the the basic things i'm doing so if like uh, i get a message from somebody says hey i'm trying to use your web app right or sorry your your mobile app so for talk by training we have mobile apps that let people take courses like i'm trying to use this and i had this problem i can just fire up postman and it'll let you create these little collections and like libraries of api calls so i can go over there and like say okay what i want to do is i want to try to call this function this api endpoint with this header and it says it's this version of the application on this platform so it behaves potentially differently. And I can just have those little things and just drop in there and just go, oh, well, let me just try that API endpoint real quickly, push the button. It's already got the right JSON body saved as the input data for my my little scenario I want to play with and whatnot. So it's a real cool way to like diagnose stuff quickly. I can jump in like, okay, this is how this part's supposed to work and I don't have to fire up the app and all that. I can just make sure it's working. And, and do you do that against um, uh the live version at that point then so, yeah yeah probably sometimes okay. not always it depends if if it makes some kind of change it might be i wouldn't do it against the live one on behalf of someone else but a lot of times it's like i'm just trying to log into this thing and get this data and it's not returning what i expected or whatever so you could just yeah. go play with that yeah neat so it, it lets you create these cool little libraries so uh yeah that's the first thing i want to just throw out there is um if you're interacting with apis you know something like postman i have the little desktop app but i think there's a web browser version as well the one thing to be aware of i've had people say well i didn't want to install the app so i just went and logged into the website and i did some stuff the security around what you can do on the web one is stricter like you can do less so for example um some sites don't allow you to call JavaScript methods from outside the domain and stuff like that, uh, cross-site scripting protections and whatnot. There's no restriction like that in the desktop app, but in the website, you are, of course, in a web app, which has more restrictions. So just heads up right. on that. Okay. Thank you, Linode, for sponsoring this episode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern application faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Test and Code. You can find all the details at linode.com slash testandcode. Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. Choose the data center nearest you. 
You also receive 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 credit on an S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash test and code and click on the create free account button to get started. So let me give you another scenario. This is something that it just, it's so, so simple. And yet it delights me so much when I see this in action. Um, I'll, I'll start with like the, the more benign example. If, so if I'm, if I'm developing a web app and I've come up with a new page, like, oh, here's the, the admin page I'm building that allows us to do, you know, X, Y, Z. And I want to share that with the team. Like, it's, I'm thinking about committing it back, but I want to have a conversation with a couple of my team members about how it works, maybe my manager. How do you do that, right? Um, if you don't want them to completely set up maybe a change to the database and all that stuff locally, it can be kind of a pain to say, just run that and quickly give me some feedback. Or, or what do you guys think at this stand-up meeting? Here's what I did yesterday, but I got stuck on this. Can anybody give me some ideas? Yeah. So one thing you can do is you could do screen sharing and let everyone see it, but then they all have to be present at the same time. That's kind of annoying. So you could let them connect directly to your local machine through their web browser and actually just try out that page. And that would be awesome, except for Router firewalls, net routing, machine firewalls, your local web server probably listens on localhost and it doesn't even let you have connections from the outside world, hopefully, right? Because of the internet is yeah. an evil place, right? All that. So what you can do is use something called Ingrok. Are you familiar with Ingrok? Well, I've heard you talk about it a few times on the show. So Ingrok is super neat. So what it does is it's a service that has, it's like a public web server. So I could go and install it and just go to the command line and type ingrok space HTTP space 5000, something like that, right? Okay. Uh, let me just type it in real quick so I can give you even more detail. So what it does, it will come up with an HTTP and an HTTPS public URL that you can use, but then it uses SSH tunnels from your local machine back to their server. So if somebody, if you give that URL to somebody, they do a request, it goes to Ngrok. Ngrok uses an SSH tunnel to talk to your local dev machine hmm. and send that back out. So you basically, regardless of firewalls, you can put APIs, you can put websites and whatnot temporarily on the internet or even permanently, I guess, if we just left it running. But, you know, it's not really, I don't think, intended for that. And it's super cool. So what you could do is just say, hey, everyone, here's the URL click on this page and tell me what you think. And it's literally your exact version running there. You don't have to try to get like some database migration set up in a staging environment or some weird thing like that. So that's kind of the, the simple case. But then you get to the more interesting use cases. Well, uh, wait a second. I'm, I'm a little concerned about this. Is there security problems with me opening up a, basically a web service on my laptop or something? <laughs> well, basically the whatever service you're exposing you should just assume that it is on the internet right because it, it doesn't have any authentication generally okay. on top of that it's some random url with a huge long 
UUID type thing. So it's not likely people are just going to start jumping on it right away. But at the same time, you know, people could request it. So you'd want to. And you're probably you've probably got some silly like mock database or something running. Yeah, ideally. I mean, that's a good point. Or you could have actual authentication in your application that just happens to also kick in locally. Maybe. Right. So but you do want to think about that. That is definitely something. And that's interesting. Like that's kind of a oh, we didn't want to do screen sharing. So cool, you can actually check out the thing live on your local computer because it does interesting animations or whatever. But then it goes beyond that. So one example, I was talking about the TalkPython training web apps. Well, they've got a talk.api. And when we were developing the TalkPython apps, uh, I was working with another guy uh, who is more of an iOS developer and a mobile developer. But I was building the API side. He was building the app side. And we needed to coordinate. Every now and then there'd be some kind of error. It's like, I'm really trying to do this thing with the API and it's not working. I'm like, oh man. All right, well, let's, let's try this and then try that. And it's, you, know, you can look at the logs on the server and stuff and it's, it's just not all that helpful. So what we did is said, well, let's run an ingrok session and go to the mobile app and change it to say that the, the API endpoint is that ingrok destination, not training.talkpython.fm slash API, whatever, right? Yeah. And then I would just set a breakpoint in PyCharm. I'd say, okay, go click the button that was causing the problem. He'd click it. It would hit a break. He was in like Europe. It would hit a breakpoint on my machine in America. I would look at the values and I step through. I'm like, oh, you're passing as a string that has to be a number. It's like quote four instead of the number four. That was a problem. And then he would fix it. And how (laughs) awesome is that exchange? Yeah. So you've just got it. He, he's he's debugging it in his app, and right, de- he's debugging the mobile side. I'm debugging the API endpoint side, and we're like stepping through it on both ends. Nice, yeah, that's yeah. Pretty cool. That's really cool. And then the third one is I was doing some stuff with uh, Twilio, and Twilio Studio has this really cool workflow designer that says if a message comes in, ask them this, and then if they say that, you can do this other thing. And one of the steps is I need to call this endpoint to decide what options I have to give them. And that was coming from this app, this Flask app I was working on. Yeah. Same thing. Create an ingrok thing, a URL, put it into the Twilio cloud, send a message with WhatsApp. It makes it to that step. And then it hits a breakpoint back on my local machine as I'm developing it before it's ready for production. That's so cool. Yeah. So yeah. this one just delights me to no end. I mean, it's a super simple idea, but it's, it's really well done. And then you're you're really just I mean there's not a lot of security risk there because you're going to tear down the ngrok session afterwards right so yeah exactly it lasts for a few minutes and um it wasn't really sensitive data yeah okay that's neat how about things like fast api and other things have this interactive mode do you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah so with fast api you can so if your app is at server.com you can go to server.com/docs d o c s and it pulls up an API, an open API documentation spec that shows you all the endpoints. And then you can go in there and test it. But um, that, that would be sort of equivalent to Postman. Okay. Right? And you could do that with, like, you could go in there and type that in. But the problem is, if you're done testing it, you put away your browser and walk away. Or if you've got three scenarios to test for one endpoint, you've typed one in and the other two are gone. Yeah. Well, okay. you want to go back and you're like, oh, I also want to pass this header and I want to say that my user agent is this versus that or like there's just 
So it's more manual. It, so it's more manual and it's not permanent. Like, so with, um, with Postman, it'll record like, here's a history of all the requests you've sent. And here's the ones that you've saved to your catalog, even though oh, there okay. could be three that go to the same URL, but this one's anonymous. That one's logged in. And it's just, you could do the same thing, but you've got to like redo it from every, typing it. It's like working in the REPL versus working in a Python file. Like you could do it in the REPL, but yeah. you wouldn't want to do it very long in the REPL or very many times. And this, this is something we actually haven't explored too much on this show before on this podcast is that there is a, there is, there's fully automated tests, there's fully manual testing, and then there's this in-between thing of, yeah. of, of using automation to help you do sort of exploratory manual poking and being able to save things. So, and yeah. post, post, sounds like Postman falls into this middle category, right? So much of the stuff I wanted to cover was like that middle ground because I feel like it doesn't get talked about a lot, right? Yeah. Okay, so one of the things that this is a simple thing that you brought up before the show was this this idea of like testing your sitemap. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this is definitely if you were to think of like the pure TDD world. Uh, of type of testing, this would probably get you bad looks. Uh, they'd be like, oh, that, mm -mm, come on, Michael, mm, nah, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you would get some of that. But at the same time, you, what if I told you, you could test like the majority of your app really, really easily and get kind of a, does it catch on fire and explode? Or does it mostly sort of work before you start answering precise questions like, if I pass the this data over, do I actually get the right location back? You know, like proper unit test, right? So one of the things that you can leverage is a, a real simple idea. What if I were to request every page on my site and, and determine, does that page load without crashing or does it 500 server error or 404 not found error, something like that, right? And it sounds really simple, but if you actually think about the ways that many websites break. They don't break like, oh, well, that little image is now hidden or there's no data in this table. They crash like, wham, you know, could not load this thing. This syntax is broken. This, yeah. this model doesn't match the tables anymore. Like it, they break hard most of the time. <laughs> and what that means when they break hard, that means, you know, the page serves up a 500 error, right? Yeah. Or it's just not found and it's a 404. So what if you just requested every page on your site as one of your tests? This is not a, this is more of an integration test side of things, but it's a really quick way to just go, let me try this and make sure things are still alive. And okay, great. Well, how are you going to do that? Maybe for a small site, super easy. Uh, the Talk Python training site has like 4,000 pages. That's a lot of pages to request, right? How would you know what page to request? Well, Almost all of our sites have sitemaps at slash sitemap.xml because we want to give that to Google and increase our SEO, right? Like one of the, tr the key things to getting your site well ranked in Google is having a sitemap that says, hey, Google, here's every page that I would like you to pay attention to, even if you don't find a link to it, right? Okay. Well, here's the test. Request the sitemap, parse the XML for each URL, request it. <laughs> response dot assert uh you know raise for unexpected or whatever that one function is that raises an error if it's not a 200 or a 201 or a 302 oh yeah right so anyway that's uh that's uh, my little tip trick to sort of 
do a quick catch-all against maybe those pages that don't have tests or parts of the sites that you forgot to write tests for. Kind of an integration test more than anything, but an easy one. And this is also, I mean, I actually love this this idea. It's a, it's just a, even if the you're in a real hurry, and like for instance, if I'm doing a, a migration from one uh, uh, one domain to another or to a subdomain or something like that. I can easily grab this uh, sitemap, uh, save it somewhere, maybe do a do a search and replace to change the domain or change the subdomain, yep. and then and then bam, I've got I can use that as a test to when I finally get there to make sure everything's still there. Yeah, um, exactly. And it's a big hammer that probably will fail until you get it right. <laughs> but it's also like really easy to generate. So yeah, it's super easy. It's probably like 20 lines of code and you've tested, it. you know, you're, you're near hundred percent code <laughs> coverage in a really, really crappy wonky way. Uh, that's fully a more integration stock. Cause it's probably going to talk to the database and whatever it's going to do. But at the same time, you know, imagine you are hired as a consultant, like, Hey, Brian, I need you to come work on this project. And yeah, this is kind of a crummy site. We don't have tests here. Please make it a little bit better and add this other feature, right? If you were given some piece of code, some website that was fairly complex and it didn't have those tests and you didn't have that much time, here's something you could put in place to like go, okay, here's a little tiny safety net as I tweak on it. And, and you want all this stuff for SEO anyway, right? So uh, you probably have it there. Just might as well leverage it. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So that's the easy one or semi easy. Yeah. Semi easy for sure. But that's, that's what, that is one of those, your site's up or your, your service is up and you're making sure it stays, stays that way. I'm occasionally going to do maintenance on my, on my application. What do I need to do to keep it alive? Well, one of the things that I think is really empowering about having proper unit tests, about having continuous integration, if you're working on a team or at least having some local tests you can run yourself like this sitemap thing before you send it up to make sure it's kind of hanging together. Um, and also having some simple way to deploy your site. There's deployment such a, a spectrum of things. But a lot of times, I'll, you know, I'll go to places and I just, I, I just can't even fathom what is happening at this team behind the scenes when they say, we're scheduling some upgrades so we're going to be down for four hours and then we'll be back. Here's our notice. You're like, what do you mean you're going to be down for four hours? Like, this is the internet. I don't even understand. <laughs> it's not like yeah. you're on vacation. What is happening, right? Like, how could it possibly take four hours to do whatever you're going to do? And so one of the things that I've ended up doing on my site is setting up a bunch of scripts that do various things. So for example, we're running, this also applies to Python Bytes, the server as well, but we've got um, some servers in DigitalOcean running on Ubuntu. And for the servers, they've got the main version, but they've also got like a smaller, cheaper $5 server that is, well, if I have to say reboot the main server for, you know, because the Linux kernel's got a security problem and it just has to be rebooted to fix it, we can flip the IP address within the cloud hosting over to the failover server. And it might be a tiny bit slower, but it's fine, right? And it's five bucks a month, who cares? Just let it run there and, and do its thing. So I've got a script that'll do something like that, right? So I can say, switch from the main production over the other and reboot it and do work on the machine and, and whatnot in case it, you know, like I said, needs a kernel patch or something. So that's nice. Also, um, 
you that might sounds complicated, want, but it's it's actually it's super super easy. Okay, it, there's like an API for saying where's the the public API assigned to which server. You can just like it, it's like fifteen lines of Python. It's not bad. Okay. That might be less actually. It's a script that just calls into the Python, right? Um, so that's all well and good. You might want to do something like that. If you're working on Heroku, right, they'll do that automatically. If you're working in Kubernetes, they'll do that automatically. That's part of the spectrum. Um, if you're working in a place that doesn't let you do that, then you might just have downtime. I don't know. But then you can start to put these building blocks together. Like, oh, you know, you know those um, that webhook idea or the the ngrok idea I told you about. Well, when you check into Git, you can go and set a webhook to call back, right? So if any commit that happens on GitHub, you can say, for this repository, call this other place. And you can check that out with ngrok and program against it and, and whatnot. So added a little thing that says, if there's a commit to a certain branch and it's changed a Python file, not just a text file or some other random thing, re redeploy the website, which means use that little script to switch it over, tell it to restart itself. It actually does a bunch of other things. So it um, it starts pre-warmed like a lot of times what can happen is certain pages are complicated to load up the first time then the caching is in place and whatnot so it'll do all that stuff before it brings it back online okay. so so now i've got a little script on my computer working in pycharm just go to the terminal type prod p-r-o-d it'll switch branches push all the changes up to the one branch that'll fire the github webhook which will bring the thing over it'll switch it over to the failover server which will refresh it so there's just all these like little steps that you can take and in the end you end up with stuff where it's like oh i just typed this word and then with zero downtime we have a new version up in one minute oh that's right neat. so there's a lot of neat little little building blocks that are like well you know sort of utilities that are useful for you but if you piece them together piece some of these ideas together then you end up with a cool thing you don't have to put messages like please don't come back on sunday because we're updating the site have you so have you ever forgotten to switch away from your failover server and just left it on the slow one for a while uh, you know i think i have uh once or twice not very often i have this little dashboard thing that has a bunch of boxes and it'll say like what's the response time on the site how many users have logged in today uh how many videos have been watched what was the last one and so on like all those kinds of things and one of them is are what deployment mode are you in production or failover okay <laughs> and and whenever they're like, wait a minute that's that's failover it's been that way for a couple of days it's, it's good enough it's just not you know you wouldn't want like a huge burst of traffic on a five dollar server but still it's it's okay okay nice but sometimes this goes wrong and it doesn't all work right <laughs> yeah one of the challenges that we run into is if you've got to update the database server like we don't have like clusters of databases so like there's a very small amount of downtime for that and you also just want to know, like, for example, one of the things that happened one time was, you know, I talked about this little IP address is the public IP address. In DigitalOcean, it's called the floating IP. And it can be assigned to one machine or the other machine. Well, one thing that has happened that is so hard to test, I don't know of very many uh, tests on the machine that I would really know how to do this because the machine is its own contained thing. It has its own IP address, but then there's this sort of virtual IP address back to itself, right? One thing that happened is there was a problem with the API at the cloud level, the cloud hosting level, where that became disassociated with either of the servers. And both servers, they, they thought they were fine. 
because yeah. they were both running and doing their thing. And they asked, how am I doing? Like, I'm fine. But uh, from the outside, nobody could get to it because the DNS records, you know, like, where's this domain go was to the public IP address. Yeah. And it just, it didn't make its way through the networking stack at DigitalOcean. I'm just like, how was I supposed to know that this was a problem? <laughs> well, you got to have cake. A cake? You got to have cake. Status okay. cake. <laughs> so I, um, I set up status cake at statuscake.com, which is pretty cool. And uh, another option might be better uptime. I just happened to have set this up with status cake when the problem was there. And I think better, time, better uptime actually looks a little bit better. Well, I mean, they claim it in the name, but anyway. <laughs> the idea is you can just set up services that will call certain things. So like status cake, I've got, I think, five or six different things that are continuously monitored. The homepage of training.talkpython.fm, the homepage of talkpython.fm, the homepage of pythonbytes.fm, but also the RSS feed of the two podcasts, because those are like the lifeblood of our podcast, right? The, the spice. Yeah. If the RSS doesn't flow, the MP3s don't flow, it's a problem. So I said, I want a specific alert that if anything happens to the RSS feed, let me know right now. And another one I did was against uh, this training API. And what it does is it just does a couple of things like, hey, try to go get some pre-assigned user from the database. Try to go to the video server, let's say in Germany, and try to watch a video and just make sure that all those things still work and then tell Status Cake, yeah, the API is okay. And then Status Cake calls that every five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is. And if it ever doesn't work, it sends me a message and says, hey, can't watch a video in Germany. That might be something you want to pay attention to. Well, okay. One of my questions. So we've got X. It sounds there's a whole bunch of like uh, software as a service services like uh, Status Cake and Better Uptime and things um, that you can run against your uh, against your service. What do you think? The like something like this seems reasonable. Uh, one of the questions I've got a few questions around it. One of them is. Does it affect your, uh, it's obviously calling stuff and re requesting stuff. Does it mess up your statistics for your download counts and things like that? No, because it's not actually requesting any of the MP3s for the podcasts. Oh, okay. And for the video plays, it's doing it like at a lower level than the stuff that does analytical tracking. So I don't, I don't think so. Uh, it doesn't run any JavaScript, so it wouldn't count any like Google analytics type stuff. We don't even have that, but. Yeah, if it okay. did, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do that. I think it would be okay. I mean, you, it is something worth thinking about because if what you're having it do is triggering some kind of analytic record, like here's a redirect to my, I don't know, to a sponsor. And I want to tell them how many times it was clicked and like, oh, well, we're <laughs> testing that. Sorry. You're really popular. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's good. Maybe you want to tell them that, but no. Um, yeah, it's okay. worth considering, but it's not for me. Yeah. And then you do things like uh, crash monitoring and stuff also, right? Yeah. And it's, oh man. Um, so I I use Rollbar and Sentry. Uh, okay. I had one and the other, and they both kind of are really similar, but they're not the same. And so it's like, <laughs> I, I just left them both in because I get notifications from both. Um, yeah. So the idea is if your website crashes, would you know about it? Because, you know, the message usually just goes back as some kind of server error to whoever requested it. And maybe they'll send you a message. Maybe they'll say, hey, I was trying to do this thing and it stopped working. 
Or maybe the reaction is, whoa, this site is unreliable. I don't want to log into it and create an account in it. I'm out of here, right? And you just wouldn't know. Hmm. Um, so you probably want to know. What you can do is set up something like Rollbar or Sentry or both. They both have free levels and then paid levels if you I want to capture more history, more errors and whatnot. Um, and they capture insane amounts of data, right? So if, if somebody goes to a page and has a, a crash, it'll say they were on this browser. It was this server, like the production server or the failover server in the story I told you. Uh, it was this version of Python. It was this version of the web framework. Here's the call, the, the traceback. Here's the call stack. Here's the headers. Here's all the cookies they exchanged. And you can go further and you can actually go and as part of the API, as a part of middleware in my website, I hook into these APIs and say, if there's a user session active, oh, hey, by the way, Sentry, the current user is so-and-so. So if there's a crash, it'll put in the email like, Joe Smith had a crash trying to watch this video on Tuesday on this on Windows with Firefox 86, and here was the query string. And more than once, I've had somebody who was trying to buy something, and there was a whole bunch of changes I made to the checkout flow for, I think, for Black Friday or something stupid. I was getting myself <laughs> out over my skis. And uh, anyway, I broke like the team checkout for a certain type of bundle. I think it's something really esoteric that I forgot to test. And it crashed. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like so bad. But luckily I had all this in there. And so I had the email address to the person. I'm so sorry this crashed. I, I saw you were trying to do this uh, purchase earlier. We fixed it. And I just want to apologize and let you know it should be okay now. They're like, oh my gosh, I was going to write you later. This is so amazing. I can't believe you wrote me a message. Like when was the last time you were on a website or an app and it crashed? And then they just contact you and said, oh, sorry, you had a problem. I'm real sorry. We fixed that for you. Like never, right? <laughs> no, yeah. I don't and it's, think so. it's, I mean, you get an email that says this user had this problem, right? And if, if you got the capacity to help them, like it's, it's relatively easy. These APIs are incredibly simple and it's huge value. That's, that's pretty cool. And you, I, you may have gained a sale that you may have lost otherwise. Yeah, exactly. They did come back and buy it. I, I don't know if they would have not otherwise, but certainly uh, it, it worked out in the favor. So something like if you've got a if you if you're actually providing a service that you make money off of um something like this could is definitely worth the whatever you're paying for it then. Yeah, exactly. Especially since I'm paying nothing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you get like five you get like 5000 errors a month before you start to pay for it. And I mean to be honest, if you're having more than 5000 errors a month, you're having a problem, right? You really just need to like stop feature development and go, okay, why are we having 5,000 crashes a month? This is too many. Even if you have a lot of users, you should like log it, send them a proper response, not crash the server. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe, maybe your testing strategy is deploy and pray. Yeah, yeah, user testing. <laughs> users. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have beta testers. They're called customers. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, cool. If you're running sentry or roll bar or something crash reporting mm. does that slow down your site maybe but in a very very imperceivable way so basically the way it works is when the web server the web framework is making a bunch of oh it's processing so i got this url i'm going to hand it over to the routing system the routing system says okay uh, that's going to go over to this view method there's one other function call that's like between those two like a decorator almost around them right yeah. and what it does it says Call, you know, try 
call the thing that's actually happening, accept, handle the error, send it off to wherever it goes, and then return the response. So it's, it's basically a function call and a try accept. If there's no error, it's just the try block. So it's really light in terms okay. of the overhead. No. It's not like re-instrumenting stuff or like it's nothing along those lines. It's basically just a one function decorator wrapper around a request. And you were saying you, were, you used um, status cake. Does that tell you uh, response times and stuff? It does. It actually gives you a really cool graph over time of what your response time, you know, average response time of this is. And it'll, call, it'll do it from different locations. Like I think the free tier does three different servers around the world for each test. So it's not just your cert site is up at the edge of your cloud or whatever. It's like, we can get to it from India. We can get to it from North America. We can get to it from Europe. And I know that, like, I don't know, it was some months ago you you started looking at the speed of your of your site of your empire, and uh, <laughs> and and tried to speed things up. Why? What was it? Was some of these status things that caused you to do that, or did you just want what to make was sure it? it was faster? No, I just there were two things that made me go down this path. One, we covered an article called Twelve. 12 requests per second on Python bytes, which made me think, well, that sounds, it's about Python frameworks. And it was about basically like, there's people that talk about all this amazing performance and my real web app gets 12 requests per second at the top end. Should I be happy or not? Basically, I'm like, mm, what does mine do? So I wanted to answer the question of, well, what is the peak number of users I could have? It's had a lot of users from like Humble Bundle deals and whatnot, but you know, where was it crash? Like we've all had these experiences where, you know, it's something happened on a popular day and some site and like the site goes down. Um, can't remember the last one I had. It was some consumer thing I was trying to buy. But, you know, the most egregious one of these has to be healthcare.gov or whatever that thing was, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you'd like to know, can my site handle 100 users? I don't know. I, 100 concurrent users uh, requesting stuff. Is the infrastructure we set up good? Do we need to add a caching layer or is it just going to handle it just fine? Uh, so the, one of the things that I was using to answer that question was locust.io. And this is like a Python goodie for sure. And, and you and I talked about this on Python Bytes a little bit, but yeah, what a neat framework. So what it is, is you write, it allows you to do load testing of your site. There's lots of those. But it does it in a really interesting and Python-friendly way. So what you do is you create a class, and a class is a bunch of methods. Each method is a thing to do to your website. And it's very test-driven feel. So it has like a setup and a teardown type of thing. Okay. And the setup might be go to the login page and log in. Because you're, the next thing you're going to do, you want to make sure that the user is logged into the site. Because that might require authentication to get to a certain part or something. Right? Yeah. Uh, so you could do things like that kind of setup stuff and then like tear down, I guess it could be log out or delete my account or something. Anyway, you would go set these, there's these different methods and you'd say on this one, I want you to request, like, let's talk about the podcast site, right? I want you to request the episode page where you see all the episodes. And then I want to have another method that's going to request the details about the podcast. And then I want to have another one that's going to request the RSS feed. And then another one that might try to download the MP3 and then one that goes to the homepage. Who knows? Yeah. And then you can actually say, well, 70% of the time, I want you to go to the episode page. 25% of the time, go to the episode list. You know, 5% go and download the MP3. 
And you can also put in, as part of that setup, you can put in a timing. Like, well, the average user will click a link between five to 60 seconds on average per page, right? Because the average user isn't like obsessively just, you know, control F5, your site or command R your site like as hard as they can, right? They're, they're going to a page, they look at it and they go to the next. So you can just set that all up into a Python class, run Locus, and it opens up a web UI with graphs and errors and like real-time views of all of this stuff. So you just give it that file. Say you tell it this server, this many concurrent clients, this many connected users, go and it'll tell you response time, number of errors. Uh, if you get error, you want to see the errors, you can log in and see the, or you go over and see the details. You get cool graphs of like performance over time. Like does your response time degrade as, you know, when does it start to degrade as a number of users? So anyway, for me, I found that I, we could do about 125 to 135 absolute concurrent requests hammering on our, our server, which with a little breakdown represented something like 20 to 40,000 users on the site at a time. Okay. Which, you know, for uh, probably $60 in infrastructure, that felt like pretty good. Yeah. And so, so since, um, I mean, conceptually, you could run this against a, a like a test server or, de- or a. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, uh, so much about the performance of Python web apps has to do are you running in a production server or in a development server? Because a development server, there's just one thread, one process. But like in production, you're running MicroWSGI or G-Unicorn with a bunch of workers spread out in like a multi-threading mode. Like the performance is really different, but yeah, you should definitely start on your machine and then think about, you know, branching out. Right, but I mean, you could also do like have a uh, a test server that's that's almost yep. like your real server. Exactly, that's a good yeah. idea because you don't necessarily want to take down the live website for everyone. But on the other hand, um, I, one of the reasons why I like talking to you about this and not like a huge company is because <laughs> you're like you're not just a, a DevOps kind of person. You're the the CEO and the <laughs> yeah. designer and the, all the things, yeah, from top to bottom, right? So, um, yeah. So, so I, a, I mean, I can do this stuff and not get in trouble. I could be regretful for it but I'm not going to get in trouble for it. <laughs> I can do these little experiments. and But at the same time, you know, one of the things that I quote a lot is you had talked about something on our show together that was, you're not Facebook, you're not LinkedIn, you're not Google. Yeah. The way you'd build your site is not those things. And so much of these sort of like this advice and these kinds of things are like, well, here's how we're going to like set up continuous scale at, you know, such and such insane level. Well, you're probably not at that level. So how do you still get stuff done and make these decisions? when you're at a, a less insane level. Right. But uh, it used to be that a single person company, or maybe I'm just wrong about this, but I guess when I had just had a little, um, you know, a little, little website or something, WordPress site or something that if I, I could build up some sort of revenue flow, but I would not do any of this extra stuff around it um, because I either didn't know how to, or it was expensive to run some yeah. sort of service. But now, like you said, some of these things, are they have a free tier, and you can just run them for free to monitor yeah, your stuff. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I talked about it being $60 of infrastructure. That's a $40 database server and a $20 web server. But it, I mean, I'm pretty sure it would be actually totally good to go $10 on the web server, $10 on the 
uh, database server. It just happens to be there's other stuff going on that I want to account for. There's nothing else I've in this whole conversation that I've paid any money for. I mean, that's $20 a month, right? It's incredible. Yeah. I remember in the early dot-com days, I'm guessing, what is this, 99, 2000, I went to this conference that was put on by, I think it was Oracle, Microsoft, and one other thing, they invited me over to this, this like setting up an e-commerce website. It's just so easy. We'll get it all set up for you. This predates a lot of the cloud computing, so they'd sell you the hardware and then the SSL load balancers and then the, all the things. And they're like, at the end, it was like, for just $100,000, you can have an e-commerce site. <laughs> You're like, it's just so insanely different than now, right? Yeah. It's so crazy. Also, I, it's worth pointing out, like, a lot of this stuff hasn't kind of been building up over, you know, four or five years, right? When it started out, it was much simpler. And then I'm like, this thing is kind of a pain point. How can we address that? Uh, that it was down and I didn't notice it. How can we address that, right? All these things have been layered on slowly over time, but it's kind of like a, a look back. Right. And they, I wouldn't do this from day one. Like I would start, I would just get, you know, something working and then like slowly build towards it. I like the idea of, the, of having something like uh, crash reporting and, and stuff because you, I assume you can take a weekend off and not worry about stuff without like, yeah. If, yeah. if your livelihood depended on it, even if it's just your side gig and your vacation money depended on it, I, I've noticed that I check stuff. I like, oh, well, is it still working? And I'll go around and manually yeah. check things. Mm -hmm. You yeah. don't want to be doing that while you're on your weekend. So something, some monitoring is a good idea. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it definitely gives you that, you know, that sort of comfort level. Like, okay, I haven't got any alerts from any of the systems. Everything must be fine. And I, I really, um, actually, I've, thanks for coming on. And I, I've also enjoyed uh, actually just coming along for the ride. I remember, I remember a lot of these changes. I remember uh, you setting up just a simple site, and then, and then doing, starting adding videos and the complication and the, <laughs> with all of that. And I remember getting a message from you saying, like, I just. I just am now deploying video from like three different locations on the earth. And, and <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like 12 different uh, video servers that it just automatically like replicates to, I've got it working on now. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. And yeah. when we were talking about the $60 thing, that's something I think about is like, not everybody is deploying and uh, serving so much video content. You've got, since you're doing a lot of video content and you're, serving that that's a lot of bandwidth that most people aren't aren't doing with their sites yeah it's it's totally it would be probably a busy month but it wouldn't be outrageous to say we had a thousand dollar bandwidth bill for the month <laughs> wow <laughs> at, at, at aws yeah yeah but that's not now right i mean yeah that's yeah. still now yeah 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 yeah. Okay. So I mean, that, all the other stuff like so this infrastructure like that i'm talking like servers and database servers and all that but like to actually deliver the bandwidth not the podcast. The podcast is for free, but um, the video stuff, because I want it like super close to people and the way it's set up. Yeah, it's it's like that. But it's okay. People are paying for it, so it's fine. <laughs> if, if, okay. don't, people don't, if people don't consume a lot, that's mean they haven't bought a lot. But if they're consuming a lot, it means they bought a lot of courses. So it's it scales perfectly with income, so it's fine. 
Okay. Okay. That that would <laughs> that sounds terrifying to somebody making zero off of their content. But, yeah, yeah. But again, it starts with smaller numbers and it goes up. But you're like, oh, okay, this is we need. <laughs> there are many alerts. There are many like tiers at AWS. Like if it goes over fifty dollars, send me a notice. If it's over a hundred dollars, send me a notice. Like, uh, like there's all these like uh billing bells that go off. Okay. You just, yeah. Okay. Uh, my heart's slowing down now again. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> my, not mine, but it's okay. It's like a steady state. Well, this has been fun, and I'm sure I, I'd like to have um, uh, people generate questions. So I'm sure this this answered some questions and generated questions. So please uh, uh, reach out, and we could do a follow up of uh, if we need to 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 do some more questions. So thanks a lot, Michael, and we'll talk to you uh, later. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, it's always great to be here, Brian. Thank you, Michael. Those were a lot of cool tools to check out. Thank you, Linode, for sponsoring the show. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Try Linode with a $100 credit by going to linode.com slash testandcode. That link is also in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 146. Thank you also to Patreon supporters. Join them at testandcode.com slash support. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs>